Well, this morning we are continuing with our sermon series through uh, marriage. And this morning's message brings us to the topic of sex and intimacy in marriage. And, of course, I, I don't plan in, over the course of this message to give any salacious descriptions or details. I'll just put you at ease right off the bat. <laughs> I don't intend to use any crude language or off-color humor. But I have just found that in our culture, we live in a culture that is so hypersexualized that it's difficult to talk about sex within the church without it feeling like a base, low sort of a thing to take up. But we will be quoting some passages out of Song of Solomon that might make some people blush. And of course, if you have little people with you, any discussion about sex and intimacy and eroticism, sexual desire in marriage, has the potential to raise questions on the ride home. So, consider yourself warned. (laughs) Talking about sex in church has the potential to be kind of uncomfortable. But I at least feel persuaded it's worth the risk because of the alternative, which is to surrender the conversation to the culture that is promoting a vision of sexual fulfillment that is empty and that not only fails to deliver on the happiness it promises, but it actively harms. Uh, Right now in our culture, there's a, a muddy, mixed message about sex that is being broadcast out into the culture. For example, some people will talk about sex as though it's just an appetite, like eating food. It's a natural urge. And so it's altogether natural that you would just satisfy that urge as it presents itself. And just like with food, where you enjoy a great variety of different kinds of food, that diversity is also good in feeding this appetite, our sexual appetites. And so then that, in that view, our culture presents sex as something that's almost insignificant. It's trivial. It's just an urge. And as you feel the urge, you satisfy the urge. And it's not laden with moral significance or any spiritual component to it. The other message that's oftentimes broadcast into our culture, especially today with uh, sexual identity politics on the rise within our culture, is that sex is a critical form of self-expression. It's the very opposite of insignificant. It's highly, deeply significant. It is a critical form of self-expression, a way to be yourself and find yourself. Sex is primarily, in this view, for an individual's personal fulfillment and self-realization. However, here's something I want you to see about both of these views of sex. Whether we view it as an insignificant base urge, appetite, or a highly significant sense of realizing who you are in your person of persons. In both of these approaches, sex is about what you get, not what you give. This is very important to see about our culture and the way it views sex. Sex is about getting something, not giving something. We're going to come back to that idea, but just tuck that away, bookmark that in your mind for now. In my experience growing up in the church, and guys, like many of you, I was raised in this thing. My my dad was a pastor. I spent my whole life in church, it feels like. 
And in all that time, I really can't think of a time when I sat in a pew as you are and sex was taught on. It just was never done. Sex was mentioned, it was alluded to. But unless it was to condemn certain sinful sexual practices, I never heard from the pulpit a pastor say that sex is a good gift from God. I doubt I can remember. My parents sat me down and told me that. And I knew from reading the Bible personally that that was true, but it's not something that is often spoken about in a church worship setting like this one. The church is definitely more practiced at speaking negatively about sex than positively. But when we think about it, why should that be? After all, sex finds its very genesis in the person of the Creator. We can say in a full-throated way that God is the inventor of sex. Some people seem to have the idea that God is against sex somehow. And that the church's attitude towards sex is one of prudish disapproval. But that is simply not true. Sex was God's idea in the first place. And when we come to the Bible, we find a God who celebrates sex. And who encourages his image bearers to enjoy the good gift of sex liberally within marriage. Proverbs 5, for example, says this. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In Deuteronomy 24, 5, we read a portion of Israel's civil law given by God to the Old Testament nation of Israel that actually excluded newly married males from military service so that they can be free to enjoy their marital bed in the first year of marriage. A command from God to abstain from work and civic duty so they could be free to enjoy sex with their new wife. It says, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Wouldn't that be great if when you got married you could just take a year off? <laughs> That'd be fantastic. I took a week off, or two. The Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon is Exhibit A for displaying God's heart towards sexual intimacy in marriage. It is really difficult to interpret that book in any other way than a Holy Spirit-inspired, full celebration of the joys of erotic love between husband and wife. I think some Bible commentators have over-spiritualized the content of the Song of Solomon. Really, it is a celebration of sexual intimacy in marriage. It's a very uncomfortable book to read for anyone who is on the prudish side, because it contains many descriptions that will make you blush if you understand them. That an entire book of the Bible is devoted to describing sexual arousal, physical attraction, Sexual longing and the delights of sexual intimacy between husband and wife is proof that God's heart towards sex is the very opposite of disapproval. In chapter 4, for example, the man describes his bride's body as a garden full of delights. And she responds, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And that's a tame example. 
This past fall, I read the book Intimate Allies by the Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman. I was preparing for this series on marriage, and I, I picked this book out and read it. And in it, he writes about the Song of Solomon. He writes this, he says, The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. In chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, she boldly exclaims her physical attraction, saying, His abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. Longman notes, most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew, of course, is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning of what is being communicated. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in the other's sexuality. For those who have not read the Bible for themselves, this content is surprising. Our culture actively tells us that the God of Christianity is a prudish sheriff killjoy when it comes to sex. And the very opposite is true. When you come to the Bible, he is a God who, in fact, commands the liberal enjoyment of this good gift within the right bounds of marriage. Marriage, this wonderful divine invention, was created in part to fulfill our God-giving longing for sexual intimacy. God, who designed the complementary anatomy of men and women with its interlocking nature and corresponding nerve endings, who floods our brains with those powerful chemical forces of attraction, that God is responsible for making sex what it is physically pleasurable, and emotionally satisfying. It's man, in our rebellion, who is responsible for taking that gift, perverting it, and making it into something selfish, sinful, and exploitive. Outside of marriage, sex is like a structure fire. When I was a police officer, one time I went and responded to a structure fire in the city where I was working, because I was doing traffic control. And when I got there, the owner of the house had broken a lower-level well, lower window so he could shovel snow into the fire, which is not a good idea because the broken window, the oxygen just rushed in and the fire spread even more quickly. But the fire department arrived. They did their best to put it out. It didn't work. The house was more or less a total loss. But when it was all over, I went up to one of the firemen and I offered to go to the store and get him something to drink which was a big gesture because policemen and firefighters don't get along. (laughs) But he said to me, just kidding. There's a little police firefighter joke. It doesn't matter. (laughs) He, uh, He said to me, and I'll never forget it, he pointed to a nearby house where smoke was coming out of the chimney, and he said, good fire. And then he pointed at the burned out wreck of the house, and he said, bad fire. Good fire, bad fire. Outside of marriage, sex is like a structure fire that has left its proper boundaries, which is to say that even if it burns with a bright intensity, it is, in the end, a destructive force. 
It consumes homes and brings lives to ruin. And once it rages to ash, all that is left is bitter aftermath. But sex within marriage, within the covenant bond of a man and woman who have said to one another, this thing we have, we have publicly declared that this is an exclusive, binding, permanent commitment. Sex within that context is like a fire in a fireplace. It brings a cozy warmth and light to a home. It's altogether right and productive. It's exciting and wild and fun. In the gift of sex, we see one of the greatest examples of God's goodness and generosity to us. Even so, rarely is sex celebrated and affirmed in Christian worship services as just what it is, an excellent gift from God. And I really think we need to recapture that. Because the culture is so loud on the topic of sex, and the church's response is so muted, or simply defined by what we oppose rather than what we think is excellent and good. In Genesis 2, we find those famous words that we have quoted often in the last two weeks. It says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But the very next verse is emphasized less often. But it gives, I think, a beautiful description of the intimacy in marriage that followed that first joining together of man and woman. It says, after saying those words, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It then says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That, for me, is a great picture of intimacy in marriage. I think all people want a person with whom they can be truly naked. And by that, I don't mean physical nakedness necessarily. Sexual intimacy is only a part, maybe even a small part, of the intimacy that we should experience in marriage. There's also an emotional, relational, and spiritual intimacy within marriage. So when I speak of being naked with another person, I mean we all want a person with whom we can, in safety, allow ourselves to be truly known. And perhaps even more than that, we want someone who, when we do allow ourselves to be known, not only does that person not judge us, but they find in our presence a delight in who we are. We all want to be known and delighted in. We want to be naked and not ashamed. Our longing for marriage is, I think, in part, a longing to regain what was lost in the garden all those generations ago. Isn't it interesting, for example, that after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden and all of humanity fell into the brokenness we currently live in the midst of, in the very next verse, immediately after they eat of the fruit, it says this, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the result of the fall was shame, separation, and hiding, a loss of intimacy. Both a loss of intimacy with God and with one another. Nakedness and intimacy was replaced by a covering that separated them and hid them from view. 
But here's the good news. When Jesus breathed his last on the, last on the cross, the curtain in the temple separating the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom, meaning there is no longer separation between God and man. And in Ephesians 5, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the mystery and the meaning of Christian marriage points to the union between Christ and his bride, the church. In other words, in Christian marriage, there is a partial regaining of Eden. And there is a foretaste of heaven to come. In a very real sense, Christian marriage is a regaining of that sense of being naked and not ashamed with another person. And what Paul says there in Ephesians 5 is that the great profound mystery of marriage is referring to Christ and the church. Really, the Christian understanding of sexuality and marriage is completely wrapped up in this idea. It's really hard to have a conversation about sex and intimacy in marriage without talking about this idea of Jesus and his church, his bride, the church. The first thing that needs to be said about this is that sex points us to the gospel. Sex, in some ways, is a living out of the gospel. And what, one of the things I want us to see is that in marriage, there is a wonderful work of redemption happening. Uh, it's, it's an uncomfortable truth, but the stats in our society for the number of people who have, ex, who have experienced sexual injury, who have been abused, who have been mistreated in a sexual way, are astronomical. And in marriage, we see a work of redemption where it's possible to have the injuries of the past redeemed in the midst of a relationship where there is strong romantic leadership that is gentle, but also forceful. There is, uh, growing up in this culture, it's very possible that especially our women have been communicated to over and over again through advertisements, through media, maybe even through a person's words, that they are not beautiful. And in marriage, there can be this wonderful act of redemption where the man says to the woman, I think you are altogether lovely to me. You are the standard by which all other women are judged. <laughs> There's just this wonderful sense of redemption when the man loves his wife in that way. And isn't that a picture for all of us who have come out of the tyranny of bondage to sin, the abusive tyranny of the evil one, into this wonderful relationship with Christ, where he says to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. This is altogether right. You're loved. You're accepted. Marriage is, can be a picture of that. Marriage is a partial regaining of that. And really, it's also hard to talk about this without also mentioning the word that keeps coming up week after week after week, and that is the word covenant. Covenant is so important to, to our conversation about sex and intimacy and marriage. There's an attitude in our culture towards sex and marriage today that says that you shouldn't get married 
if you do not experience good sexual chemistry first, I don't know where I heard it. I, I think it was on a, on, a, on a sitcom maybe. But I, I heard somebody say at some point, and I'm pretty sure it was on TV, that getting married without having had sex first would be like buying a car without having gone for a test drive. This is a common attitude in our culture towards sex and marriage. Sarah and I got married on June 16, 2001. We share our anniversary, uh, the day, not the year, with Aaron and Chelsea Whitaker. And it was so strange on June 16th to wake up in the morning and have sex be absolutely forbidden. And then in the evening, it was absolutely required. <laughs> you can't be naked together. It's wrong. It's totally off limits. And then at night, you guys have to go be naked together. It's a weird, sudden, 180-degree shift. And what is the difference between the morning of June 16th and the evening of June 16th? Well, there's a one thing that happened. Covenant. Covenant is what happened. Covenant is what made it not forbidden, but required. To the culture, this boundary line seems somewhat arbitrary and absurd. But covenant makes a difference. We know, all know intuitively that true intimacy can never flourish in the prove-yourself uncertainty of test-drive sex. Right? That's not a place where you can be yourself, where you can give your whole self when there's the possibility that this might just be not what you'd hoped it was and walk away. True intimacy can never flourish in an environment where the other person has said, I'm giving you my body, but I'm reserving my whole self with the possibility that I might not commit my whole self to you. I just want this fleeting pleasure. How can intimacy possibly flourish? True intimacy, deep, naked intimacy, when that's the dynamic, that's what's being communicated. Sexual intimacy is not the basis of our willingness to enter into marriage, covenant, as our culture suggests. It follows covenant and flourishes within the safety and permanence of covenant. I'll tell you, one of the only ways that Sarah and I have been able to really bear our souls and may allow our true selves to be known is the bedrock conviction that if I reveal myself to be who I am truly, Sarah will not run for the hills. <laughs> She's not going to leave because I have, and my, my basis of that commitment is not that she is tethered to me because of some attraction to me or that I am somehow wonderful, to, wonderful enough to keep her in my orbit. It's that I understand Sarah to be a serious Jesus follower. And I understand that her commitment to the Lord and to her promises before the Lord are what keep her with me. And I can be myself, because that's true. And she can be herself. We can be, both be truly naked within our marriage because of that covenant. Trust me, you will love your spouse best when you love God most. 
And you cannot love your spouse much at all if you do not love God most. The gospel teaches us that it is wrong to give your body to someone to whom you will not also give your whole life. And biblically, sex is more than just the giving or taking of physical pleasure from another person. It is a very dissonant thing to give one's body to someone, but not one's whole self. There is another way in which sexual intimacy in marriage points us to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Paul is actually saying a very controversial thing here. I think in the context of our own culture, this just sounds right on. We understand this. We get this. We live in an age of great equality between the two genders. However, we really need to go back to the first century Roman world to see these words for the gut punch that they are. It's not nearly as shocking to us as it was the original audience, but among the Corinthians, and indeed throughout the Greco-Roman world of the first century, it is well documented that the purpose of marriage was understood as existing for the procreation of legitimate heirs who would inherit and continue the name, property, and legacy of a family. However, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, in effect, redefines marriages back along biblical lines as existing for the mutual satisfying of erotic desires between a husband and wife. He writes, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And this kind of talking, this kind of reasoning would have struck the Corinthians as odd because in their culture in that day, marriage was a passionless arrangement. Deeply steeped in platonic thought, sex was viewed as a base but necessary evil for the propagation of the species. In that culture, erotic desires were expected to be satisfied, but not within marriage necessarily. Marriage existed for other reasons, legal reasons, family reasons, property reasons. You could get sex at the market for the other reasons that you might want it. And in a time when women were both legally and culturally considered the possession of their husbands, Paul makes a revolutionary claim that the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Paul actually says that the man's body belongs to the woman. He uses the property of language. The language of property, I'm sorry. This was a wildly countercultural thing to say. Again, within Corinthian culture, it was shameful for wives to behave unfaithfully to their husbands, but not for husbands to be unfaithful to their wives. That was just expected. However, not only does Paul communicate the negative expectation that Christian men would not have sex with women other than their wife, 
But he goes even further to say that a, that a husband had a positive obligation to fulfill his marital duty to provide his wife with sexual pleasure and satisfaction. Women, likewise, were to be sexually available to their husbands. And in this, we see a wonderful, other-focused mutuality and generosity and selflessness in this view of sexuality in marriage. Nothing like this had ever been said before in the context of that culture. This was a new idea at the time, and it expresses something powerful about marriage as a living reflection of the relationship between Jesus and the church. In Ephesians 5, the passage of Scripture that we have been studying for the past couple Sundays, we see that the overarching principle that is meant to combat self-centeredness, which we identified last week as the biggest problem in every marriage. I challenge you to show me a bigger problem. <laughs> I've, I, I've prayed about making so bold and sweeping a statement as that. But as I've turned that around in my mind, I've come to see that it's true. The biggest problem in my marriage, and I'm willing to bet the biggest problem in your marriage, is self-centeredness. And what does the Bible give us to combat this drift towards sinful self-centeredness? Well, it is a call to a selfless seeking of one's joy in the joy of your spouse. In all the commands in Ephesians 5 for husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands, he is saying, husbands, seek your joy in the joy of your wife. Wives, seek your joy in the joy of your husbands. And is this something that Jesus modeled toward his church? Yes. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What motivated Jesus to do what he did on the cross? It says, for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? It's you. You are. He sought his joy in your joy. Why did he go to the cross despising the shame, enduring that? He sought his joy in our joy. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that you were bought at a price? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, in the Bible, we see Jesus seeking his joy in our joy. And we see the church called to seek our joy in worship, in a worshipful giving of ourselves to God. There is a mutual preferring of the other and giving of oneself to the other in the gospel between Jesus and his church. And we see a calling to a similar giving of oneself to the other within marital intimacy. And this is really where the sexuality of Christianity differs most markedly from the culture. What this means in its practical outworking is that in Christian marriage, each partner is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it. 
Tim Keller writes, in short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. Which does bring us to a difficult point. Men and women are so different. (laughs) How do we understand where the other is coming from? Well, let me, at the great risk (laughs) of, uh, of not understanding women very well, I always say, I say this quite often, I barely understand myself, much less the female gender. But let me just for a second, guys, let me try my best as a dude, (laughs) try and tell you what wives desire from their husbands. Ladies, if I get it wrong, I'm sure I'll hear about it. If I I get it wrong, feel free to privately coach your husband. Okay. Josh is a well-intentioned guy, but he's kind of a sweaty mouth breather. He doesn't actually know what he's talking about. So, 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 So let me tell you what's really up. Okay. Feel free to have that conversation if I get it wrong. But this is my understanding of women, such as it is. For women, the context surrounding sex matters a great deal more than with men. Men need to understand that women tend to be more complex emotionally when it comes to sexual desire. In times of sexual intimacy, a wife is open and vulnerable, both physically and emotionally. The wife invites the man in, and this this sense of vulnerability calls for a context that feels good and safe and warm. Women want to know that they hold a singular place in their husband's affections, that they are special and lovely to him. They want to feel loved in the context of lovemaking. What context means will vary from woman to woman. So husbands, I really think, need to be sensitive to their own wives specifically. We need to listen to them and to the things that they say about those conditions that will help them to become aroused and enter into sexual desire. Basically, this concern for context means preparing for sex emotionally. Men need to be told this because this is so alien to how men function. Ladies, men... Anytime, anywhere, under any conditions. Context means very little to a man when it comes to sexual desire. But women are, in the main, different in this respect. For one, women are more relational than men. So context matters a lot to women in order to experience sexual desire. For some women, there might need to be a sense of connection, conversation, warmth, or a shared adventure to get in the mood. Ladies, this is a topic I can speak on with greater authority. (laughs) Let me tell you what husbands want from their wives, or at least, Sarah, what I want. (laughs) Oh, I've been waiting for this. It's just fantastic. (laughs) Sarah, let's talk about this in front of 100 people. (laughs) first of all i'm not surprising anybody when i say this fact that men think about sex a lot it's really something that men are generally somewhat even consumed with 
We're very sexual creatures. When women look forward to marriage, they are looking forward to having a partner, a close, intimate friendship with, with which to share life's adventure. But when men look forward to marriage, they imagine nonstop sexual availability. There is a self-centeredness in the midst of this, both on the part of men and women. If we approach marriage as personal wish fulfillment, we're set up for conflicting visions of what that marriage is going to be like. Men just want the sex. Women want this close, intimate friendship. And when we come to it at wish fulfillment and not as a selfless giving, we're going to be at loggerheads over what marriage is. But as I already stated, the context surrounding sex matters very little to most men. Ladies, you can light candles and scatter rose petals on the bed. You can turn on Barry White. It doesn't matter. You would just be wasting your time. Men don't care about any of that. However, women should understand a few things about their husbands, that emotional context is not completely irrelevant to men. When it comes to male sexual desire, most men want to feel significant in the eyes of their spouse. They want a sense of their wife's respect when they come to the bedroom. Men tend to be motivated by praise, but even so, it's still true that men tend to be much, much less emotionally complex when it comes to conjuring sexual desire. The biggest turn-on for a husband, I think, is his wife's desire for him. Men love to feel that their wife is turned on in, their, in his presence. Men tend to be very visual creatures. So women, I would encourage you to be visually generous with your husbands. By the way, this is why I think men are so vulnerable to pornography. It's this, it's this uh, toxic cocktail that internet pornography provides, where it's all the visual stimuli of sex without any of that context stuff I just talked about with the woman. Men don't care about context. It's work. It's something we give out of selfless generosity in our marriages. But it's not something that scratches our itch. And so pornography offers this place where you can have nonstop, anonymous sexual availability without any of that context work. So there is a place here for husbands and wives to understand each other and understand how we are vulnerable, how we are tempted to stray, and we can be helped. Visual stimuli is to men what relational emotional context is to women. And ladies, you need to understand that. You need to understand the allure and the power of your own sexuality to your husband. Uh, a word about this, by the way, um, I think in my own experience, and again, I'm hesitant to describe women who I don't understand very well, but, but it seems to me that many women struggle more than men with body image issues. And so when we come to this topic of women being visually generous to your husband, 
I think there's a concern on the part of women that uh, men won't like how they look. And I would just say this, um, be, be brave. <laughs> and men, be loving, be gentle, be careful with your words. When Sarah and I first got married, we were 23, I think, isn't that right? Yeah. And at that time, I was, I looked at pictures in, in our wedding album recently, I was a skinny dude back then. But over the years, Sarah has become kind of a chubby chaser. Her, 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 what she's attracted and into has evolved with my looks. She used to be into clean-shaven guys. Now she's kind of into bearded guys. I used to not be attracted to women in their 40s with graying hair, but now that's kind of my thing. That's, guys, that's, that's, guys my, my... My sexual preferences, my, my uh, aesthetic in women has evolved with Sarah's looks. And I think that when we're married, this is what happens. This is the experience. Guys, I am not lying. I am not pandering when I say this. The Holy Spirit can bear witness to the truth of this statement that I am every bit as attracted to my wife as when we first got married. She looks very different. I look different. But it's still good. It's still right. Listen, as, our, as we age, have babies, you get older, your, your bodies don't look the same, that is not an impediment to sexual attraction. Men, you can be sexually attracted to your wife. Your, your tastes can evolve. But the big principle here is this. Sex in marriage will be great when it finds expression not in a selfish taking, but rather in a selfless giving to the other. This is where Christianity in the church is such a different vision than what the world offers. The world says it's an appetite, which then presents sex as you bellying up to the bar and taking what you can. Or it says it's the path to self-realization, Every impulse that you feel within you must be acted upon so you can become self-actualized. And there again, it's set up as a thing that's for you personally. But Christian sexuality says this, that sex and marriage should find expression not in a selfish taking, but rather in a selfless giving to the other. Now, all of this is a fairly rosy picture of what marriage should be ought to be. But it's true that we bring a lot of baggage, sexual baggage, into our marriages. Oftentimes within our marriages, uh, our sexuality fails to live up to the fullness of what the Bible would call us to. There's a lot to unpack and to help us process together as married couples that we don't have time here for this morning, which is why I'm so grateful for Saturday night. We're going to get back together here in the fellowship hall on Saturday night, just like last Saturday. We're going to play some games together. It'll be fun. And we're going to dive in and process some harder things about sexuality and marriage. Um, what do you do with some of the past history stuff, with the baggage? How do we overcome 
uh, some of the, the difficult things sexually that we've experienced in marriage. We're going to try and have a, a conversation about that in a safe way, <laughs> and uh, hopefully we can come out and be a part of that. I encourage you to do that uh, on Saturday night. Let me close now in prayer. But just keep in mind as you go out from here this week that big principle, it's so important. In 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, Husbands, your body belongs to your wife. And wives, your body belongs to your husband. It is calling Christian husbands and wives to this vision of sexual fulfillment that seeks their joy in the joy of the other. In giving, not getting in the sexual experience. And when husbands and wives are mutually submitted to the truth of that, it can be a really great thing to have in our marriages. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good gift of sex. Thank you, Lord, for the way that that points us to the rapturous delight that we will experience at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I don't believe, Lord, that that will be sexual in nature, but this thing you have given to us as husbands and wives points us to just the highest summit of earthly joy. And Father, all of that is deeply spiritually significant. It points us to the church's union with Christ for the delight that we will experience at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Father, I thank you for this conversation this morning. I thank you for these marriages here in the room. And Father, for the husbands here in the room, I pray that they would provide strong romantic leadership in their marriages. I pray that they would be gentle, that they would be considerate, that they would express love. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give them a deepening sexual attraction to their wives. I pray that they would not be led astray into other areas of sexual fulfillment that do not fulfill, but leave empty and ashamed. Father, I pray for the wives that, that Father, they would seek their joy and the joy of their husbands, that they would understand how their husbands think, that they would be full of praise for their husband, that they would extend respect, and that they would, in, all, in everything, be communicating to him that he is the object of their desire. Father, I pray that our, for the husbands and wives here in our church fellowship, God, that sex and within their marriage would not be about getting, but giving. Father, help us by the Holy Spirit to do that well. And cause our marriages to flourish, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.